There's a quote from Rachel Zoe that says, style is a way to say who you are without having to speak. Imagine the reality of this world and how much is communicated without saying a word. Because you probably already know this if you're on Instagram and have ever followed someone just because of their feed. And take a moment to think, when you look at social media and how poor people portray themselves, do you judge maybe even quietly to yourself? My dad always said not to get a facial piercing because people would judge me and just ask me about that and what really happened in real life after that some other time. But now imagine people of color who are judged by the color of their skin, their appearance, before they even have a chance to say a word. So fashion and style is an interesting place to begin a conversation about racial identity. But that's what we're doing today, because we're talking about what's happening in the fashion industry with regards to Black Lives Matter and representation. So even if you aren't yourself into high fashion, you'll appreciate what our conversation partner and fellow biracial woman, she's half black and half white, Hope McGrath has to say about labels both fashion labels and the ones we put on ourselves and each other when we ask, what are you? And how we can make choices that will help shift the tide when it comes to providing role models and access points for little girls and little boys who don't look like the leggy, skinny, white models that used to be the only thing we'd see. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Hope, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We connected right around the start of Shelter in Place, which seems like, I don't know, 389 years ago. But we have been waiting for the fall and our chance to connect again. So for the sake of our audience, could you please introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, my name is Hope McGrath, and I am a coach and creative entrepreneur. I spent years, over 20 years in the fashion industry. I was producing fashion shows and working, doing press for designers. And I'm a Brooklyn mom. At the same time, I also have launched a Radiant Mix podcast, which celebrates the mixed experience. And so I consider myself a multi-hyphenate creative entrepreneur, where I have all these different passions and I combine them all into the work I do. I love that. And for those of you who cannot see the screen, I mean, she's impeccably dressed. Everybody is just fabulous on this and I love it. You know, since that time, this 2020 has been bonkers in so many different ways. Thank you. But we did want to start with the impact of the renewed interest in Black Lives Matter. You know, you mentioned biracial, like we've connected along these lines of having met multiracial children. But is there like a renewed interest in Black Lives Matter in fashion? And how does that look? Misasha pointed out to me that there was a great article in the Washington Post, which talks about, you know, this interest in Black Lives Matter, you know, and then the people talk about diversity in fashion, but there's definitely skeptics who feel like, you know, just like we're seeing in the greater population, a declining interest in Black Lives Matter from the white population, they might also say that, well, fashion's interest in Black Lives Matter is also a fleeting moment and not a movement. So how do you process all of that? Well, you know what, I really am hopeful because what I've been noticing is pretty impressive between the new Black and Fashion Council that's formed with the editor of Teen Vogue and a PR consultant. They came together and they're holding fashion brands accountable. 
And I love that. So when, between that, between the Black Fashion and Council, between the 15% pledge that Aurora James has launched, uh, Brothers Veli's, between the CFDA, which is the Council of Fashion Designers in America, announcing their launching programs devoted to hiring more Black talent. There's a lot of different initiatives. And the key is, is this going to stick? That is the big key. What I'm hopeful for is there's so many different organizations being formed. Maybe, just maybe, this can ignite long-term change. I remember being shocked right after the Black Lives Matter movement, Anna Wintour of Vogue magazine put out a statement basically admitting how she did not find enough, quote unquote, enough ways to elevate space, elevate and give space for Black editors, writers, photographers, and other creators. And she's admitting to her mistakes and that how they didn't publish enough images or stories. And they might have published those images that have been harmful and hurtful and intolerant. And she admitted to taking full responsibility for those mistakes. That was beyond shocking. Because of her personality, right? Like, I mean, as exemplified by that movie, she didn't seem like she was the one who would be admitting to these mistakes and that sort of stuff. Is that part of it? I think, this is just my personal opinion. I think she's admitting to these mistakes because she realized her time is up. And in the Black Lives Matter movement, you hear a lot of articles saying, is this going to be the end of Anna Wintour? because everything has been so white and elitist for so many generations, is she capable of multiculturalism? So with the Black Lives Matter movement, she and many other editors, such as, I mean, Self Magazine did a whole thing about all kinds of editor-in-chiefs have been writing about, they've realized they have not included black and brown faces as much. They haven't definitely not included in behind the scenes, editors and everything else. But I think what's happening is, I think Anna Wintour, for example, had her back against the wall and she had no choice but to acknowledge this. Otherwise, she will have serious repercussions because the world is blowing up around Condé Nast, right? And so I found sadness in that. I did not find joy in Anna Wintour, like finally recognizing that she's been overlooking Black talent for, I think she's been in the editor-in-chief for 32 years. It took 126 years of Vogue, Vogue's existence, to have a Black photographer shoot a cover. And that only happened, in my opinion, because Beyonce demanded it. If it was up to Anna Wintour, I really doubt like a 20-year-old, a 20-something-year-old Black young photographer would be shooting the cover of Vogue after 126 years of no Black photographer's shooting the cover of Vogue. So when you look at those numbers, it's devastating. And for me, as someone that's worked in the fashion industry for almost 20 years, I know that dates me, but damn, it's true. On and off, I was a lone publicist. I was producing shows as the only Black person I saw on site producing shows when I was doing them. And I remember one day when I was producing a fashion show at, in 7th on 6th, which in New York, during New York Fashion Week, back in the days in the 90s, Bryant Park was the place where all everyone had their fashion shows. So my first show when I was there preparing for the show, I was doing press. A Black venue manager, who was the only Black venue manager at the time, came up to me and she says, I just want you to know you're the only production company of color in this entire fashion week. And I hadn't even thought about that. 
because I think being mixed, like I'm not always like, oh, I'm the only black person, you know, like I don't really think of it in that way all the time, but I was shocked. And I remember her saying that. I'm curious because, you know, we always joke that me, Sasha has known me from the time I could barely dress myself. Like fashion has not been my strong suit, but I've come to learn in the conversations that we're having, how influential the fashion industry is. Like to me, on one hand, there's a part of me that's going, so why does this matter? Why is, why is, you know, racism in fashion a big deal? And on the other hand, I realize how much money and how much waste and like what an influential industry it is. Like for someone who's not in it, can you explain a little bit why this is such a big deal? Okay. Well, my childhood is a perfect example of why it's a big deal. So you have a little girl who loves fashion. Her grandmother's a diva. My grandma, total diva. Dressed to the nines, 24-7, diamonds and pearls and furs, like dressed fabulously. And so my mom's a hippie and totally ignored my, her mother. And I just followed my grandmother. I was like, okay, I love this style thing. So you have a little girl who loves fashion. And then when she becomes a teenager, obsessed with fashion imagery, my entire wall in my bedroom as a teenager was wallpapered of fashion editorials and campaigns. You could not see the wall. And what happened as a mixed black girl in a predominantly white culture, I was, I grew up in Long Island, is I did not see reflections of myself maybe one or two. You have Iman, you have a few other girls. Iman was my idol because she was African and she kind of resembled me a little bit. I could kind of connect to her. But I end up having white, skinny women all over my walls, all over my life. Everything I aspired to be was this white, skinny ideal of beauty. And what that does to young girls of color it destroys their self-esteem. It literally destroys their body image positivity. Now they call it body positivity. Destroys body positivity. Destroys you thinking you're pretty. It destroys you feeling like you could ever fit in. And so many people, and this idea of quote unquote, I'm not good enough. This is a... I studied feminine power stuff. So like it's a feminine false belief that is universal. So for women all over the world since the beginning of time, I'm not good enough is a traditional false belief. And fashion imagery and media deeply affect pop culture, impressionable girls on how they view themselves. So I grew up not feeling like fit in, never feeling I could feel good enough always wanted to be something I could never be. And it's not good. So when you love fashion, or even if you don't care about fashion, you still see the magazines. You're still watching television and seeing who's on television. It's not just mag fashion magazines. It's media across the board. But when you love fashion, which gazillions of people do, it affects you negatively if you don't see people reflected of yourself. And what happens is if there aren't people of color in positions of power in the fashion industry, then you rarely, rarely get that chance. A few sprinkle in, like, you know, Naomi Campbell and Amon and everyone. There's a handful, Pat Cleveland, there's a handful of very successful black supermodels, but it's few and far between. And I think that also the importance of fashion is that how you present yourself matters. So you might think you don't care, 
And you might think, oh, it doesn't really matter. But I will say that it does matter. And I understand how you feel because my mom actually feels the same way as you. Like, eh, it's kind of frivolous. And like, it's very wasteful. We're harming society and we're doing all this. We're harming the earth. Fast fashion is detrimental to our world. All that is true. But fashion is art. And that's how I look at it. Fashion is art. And so people that love beauty and love art, they need to see themselves reflected in that art. That's super powerful. And I understand what you mean by it being art and also the representation and imagery. Like I think part of my personal, I don't want to say disinterest, but like lack of investment in it is because I feel like I could never be that beautiful. So there's a part of me that feels like, well, why bother trying? Because I don't know if I could pull it off. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. That's why it matters. That's exactly why it matters. Yeah, I love that she said that too, because I was that girl growing up too, who loved fashion, who had all the magazines. And I remember when I think it was Jenny Shimizu started modeling because I was like, this is an Asian woman. And you just didn't see, I didn't see people who had bodies like me. And I definitely was not, you know, and I remember Kate Moss or like, you know, and growing up in the 90s, I mean, coming of age in the 90s like that. And I was like, this is not me, but I couldn't find me. And I even being white presenting, I couldn't really find me being biracial. So I can't even imagine how exceedingly more difficult it is for people when there is no representation and there's been no accountability for that. So I think that that's great that you were talking about the hope too, you know, and everything that's out there, but also the sadness that, you know, this is what it's taken. Like this is people's backs against the walls. Cause I think now about, you know, the Academy Awards releasing their statement that it has to be in order for a movie to be considered for best picture, it has to have inclusion and there has to be representation as of 2024. And, you know, I was talking to my husband about that. He's like, well, that's great. But unfortunately it's about, you know, the Academy is trying to fix a little of all the damage that they've done. And so I feel like in some ways fashion is kind of, you know, doing little bits and pieces here and people have, are pushing who have a voice like Beyonce, but it's not necessarily an altruistic, like, let's bring everyone into the fold, you know, initiation from the fashion industry itself in some ways. Right. But I am hopeful because, I mean, if I look at the Black in Fashion Council, how they're actually offering a directory of Black professionals in the industry that people can refer to, they, I would have died to be in some kind of directory when I was working in fashion. Are you kidding me? I mean, I didn't really think it was race now, but there's so many oversights. I was overlooked so many times. The list can go on and on and on. And I never thought it was because I was black, but only when I reflect back, I'm like, oh, is that possible? That I wasn't written up and featured in this article, A, B, C, or D, when I had everything it took to be included in that article. I don't know. I'm not going to blame racism on everything because I cannot, but I wonder, you know, but I also think I'm so happy that the CFDA, which is like one of the most powerful organizations in the fashion industry, the Council of Fashion Designers, they launching these initiatives, but also there was a group of 250 black designers 
that didn't think the CFDA's efforts were good enough. And they started something called the Kelly Initiative, which is named for the groundbreaking Black designer, Patrick Kelly. And so what they're asking the CFDA to do is conduct a census of the industry, publicly disclose the racial makeup of employees and all members of the organization, ensure that hiring managers in those organizations take anti-bias training. This is like unprecedented. This I was like, what? And like, you're having all these designers and brands and retailers and all these companies realizing, uh uh-oh, if we do not change, we see the writing on the wall, our money is going to dwindle because everyone does like the 15% pledge. Black people are now realizing they need to hunker down and put their money where their mouth is. And not just Black people, But now all culturally conscious people are like, wait, maybe I should consider taking 50% of my dollars and purchasing something from a Black business. Maybe I should go out of my way to look for a Black designer, to go to a Black mom and pop, to eat at a Black restaurant, whatever it is. How can I buy Black beauty products? Whatever. How can I take what a little percentage of my spending and put it towards a black business. So the fact that people are thinking about this is pretty mind-blowing to me. And I will say that I will admit that I didn't always do that. It's so easy. You want something, you go to Target. You want this, you go there. Like I just fell in love with this beauty brand that is owned by a Chinese woman, but it's a inspired by Japanese culture, Tatcha. So I'm like, so into this brand. I'm like, but wait, it's not black owned. So I'm like, okay, Let me love my Tatcha. And when I finish with that, I'm going to try a black owned brand. Like I need to go out of my way because I can't find it at a store. I didn't, it's not easy for me to find. I need to make an effort, you know? So I think I'm excited that some of my friends that are white are saying, you know what? We're going to make an effort to go and buy black. And I'm like, thank you because it matters. And what they're talking about is if these black owned businesses can start receiving support, they can receive so much money to inspire their livelihoods. So that's kind of what I think is pretty cool. I love that. I mean, I have two questions. One is, what could either of you, you know, you mentioned the 15% pledge a few times, but can we just lay out what that is for people who don't know what the 15% pledge is? And then the next question I have after that is, it's one thing to be like, cool, people are starting to think about it and it feels hopeful and we're moving in the right direction. But how do you know when the fashion industry has succeeded in its mission? Uh, you know, I don't think it's one of those like, we've arrived, done, check. But like, what are the gauges that we should be looking for? I guess I'll start with a 15% pledge. So what that is, is fashion designer Aurora James launched this pledge really to inspire retailers to devote 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses. That's really what her initial passion was for, because sometimes when you go into store, you rarely will see a Black-owned brand or anything like that. So that was the initial concept. But what evolved from that is now, I mean, I signed up for the 15% pledge, and I'm not a retailer. It is for any customer that wants to pledge to spend 15% of your um, spending power on black businesses. That's really all that it is. You know, it's really not brain surgery. It just takes a lot of effort, but I'm pretty impressed with a lot of brands that signed up for both the black and fashion council to align with their 
mission and both the 15% pledge. So many great brands have signed up and I hope they sign up more. So maybe people that are listening will just go onto the 15% pledge website and they can sign up as a consumer, you know? Um, In terms of will we ever see what will happen in the future of fashion, I don't think I'm going to see results anytime soon. I think you're talking decades. It's not going to happen overnight. Look at the article I sent you in the New York Times about percentage of white CEOs and positions of power in every industry in America. That was a depressing one. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's predominantly white. So are there going to be multiple black fashion editors of top magazines? I'm not going to hold my breath. Are there going to be black CEOs of luxury brands in Europe and America? I'm not going to hold my breath. But if we can, will we see more models on covers? Yeah, they can do that. Will we have more stylists behind the scenes? Will more fashion brands hire black staff? That I hope so. I mean, I'm not, it's almost like wishing for, you know, racism not to exist. I mean, I don't believe that the fashion world is going to give up their white privilege anytime soon. But I think that it's important for everyone in the industry to fight for their right. I'm all about it. And just to follow up on that, because, you know, we've talked about initiatives that have started in the industry, kind of like Black designers banding together, or the Kelly Initiative, or the 15% pledge. And we've also talked about, or you were talking about, you know, Beyonce sort of exerting pressure to have that young Black photographer, you know, shoot her. And so I'm wondering, where do you see, I mean, changes coming from the inside, changes coming from the outside, sort of, of the fashion world circles. Do you see that being equal forces? Do you see, you know, change coming more from one group or the other? Or how do you see that happening, I guess? I mean, I think that fashion is an insular industry. So the elite make decisions. And it's up to really bold and empowered individuals to make a stand, such as the organizations I just mentioned, such as someone like Beth Ann Artisan, who is a former model and she's a former model agent and she's an advocate for black models in the fashion industry. Years ago, she was calling out fashion designers straight up, calling them out to say, you had one black model out of 20. You had two black models out of 40. Each designer calling out how many black models were on the runway. Everyone was pissed off. Everyone's freaking out. She's just like calling it like it is. She's collaborating with Naomi Campbell and Iman. They're going on to television shows talking about it. She's busting everyone up. But it did have a teeny bit of shift. But again, she's one initiative. It just needs to happen over and over and over and over again. That's kind of how I see it happening. You know, this is persistence. And that's what we've always said. Like, this isn't going to change overnight. And so many people have to really embrace this as a long-term sustainable effort of raising our voices and speaking up. So that seems to unfortunately or fortunately fit in line with, with that theory of change, especially when it comes to this. But you know, we talked about voting with your wallet earlier, right? Like putting your 15% as a consumer. Misasha has opened my eyes. You know, H&M is a cheap fashion brand that my kids, sometimes it's really easy to just walk in there and grab something that looks cute, but like is good for the kids pricing. And I was not as aware of 
some of the horrifically racist things that they have done. And I don't know, Misasha, if you want to talk about this intersection of like fashion and racism in particular, not like behind the scenes or representation, but the clothes and the products that are being put out by some of these companies. And like, how do you address that? How should we be thinking about that? Let's tell the backstory. I think that, you know, when H&M put out their King of the Jungle shirt with the black child on it. Well, I never bought anything from H&M again, but B, you know, it is really shocking to see, you know, sort of racism highlighted front and center or just how that got through the design process to the point of getting to the consumer. And no one along the line was like, you know what, this seems like it's racist. And this is why. And so I think that, you know, we've seen examples recently, like high fashion, like Gucci's blackface sweater coming out in 2019, or H&M again, recently having an internal code word for one of their products, which was basically the N word. But yet you still see people and you see influencers buying, you know, these brands and showcasing them. So what I mean, how do you think we should address companies who perpetuate racism on this level? Well, I think so far society has called a lot of these brands out. It's called Black Twitter. All you need is Black Twitter. They will just mess every brand up once they see something, you know, especially, I mean, look, Prada had that little accessory, a blackface little doll as an accessory as you said, Gucci and the sweater. So I'm going to start with one thing. First of all, the reason why that happens, the reason why those products are actually in the store that you can purchase is because there are no black people in executive suites. There's no head designers. There's no black people in decision-making process. So when there's no black executives, there's no one to say, hey, why don't you rethink about this? Hey, that's offensive. So why, back to an old question of why does it matter? Why is it important? This is precisely the reason why it's important. When there's no representation of color in positions of power, there's no head designers that are Black in these huge organizations, or if they are Black, no one listens to them, or especially, and you're talking luxury fashion in Italy and Paris, I mean, it's rare to have a designer, a Black designer of power in those offices. So they're in Italy and Musha Prada's not thinking about blackface in America. She's thinking about a cute little accessory she can create. And so without that black voice, so many things get overlooked time and time and time again. You know, what was your other question? Plan B for that. Well, I think part of what I asked was like, how should we handle that? Because, you know, you mentioned black Twitter, but I didn't know about black Twitter until me. Sasha told me about it because her husband told me like, I was like, black Twitter exists. What is black Twitter? Yeah. Black Twitter is when black people see wrongdoing or positive things, whatever. So the black Twitter comments on black culture, period. So there's so many things in the black culture that are for Black people that Black people recognize and they think are funny, they think is humorous, they think they're passionate about. So Black people also call out things that are they see as racist. And so that's what Black Twitter is. So Black Twitter, like no one can really get away with things, but that's why you have that whole, this phenomenon of Karens, white women as Karens. Black Twitter charged that whole thing with taping white ladies having racist comments against black people having barbecues, you know? I mean, that whole Karen thing happened 
because black Twitter was like, I'm not putting up with the BS anymore. You can forget it, you know? And so it'll always be called out. I think from now on, like, so companies can't really get away with stuff. That's why H&M or Prada or Gucci, what happens is, or even like Dolce & Gabbana in China, they had all this, they had biased ads against Chinese culture without, again, without consulting with someone of that culture. When there is no diversity or multicultural consultancy, then you get what you get, you know? And I think it does matter, but I think that many brands will continue to be called out. So they're just going to have to, they end up throwing away so much money when they make those mistakes. And the answer to that is to hire more people of color in the decision-making positions. But then I think about all the white people who also have wallet power. And do you think the mainstream media covers these violations enough? You know, like, do we need to have a list of companies to boycott? Do you think white people should stop buying Gucci? You know, do you think like, does that matter? Is that the stuff that'll impact enough their bottom line to get them to listen or be more sensitive and get them to hire more black people? Like, how do we, as an everyday person, address companies like who make mistakes like that regularly? I mean, I think there's no way in hell you're going to get anyone to stop buying Gucci or Louis Vuitton or Prada or anything. You could forget it. It will never happen. So there's no point in being unrealistic, right? People are going to flock. Hey, black designer, black celebrities, they're going to still buy luxury brands. You know, whether Prada has a snafu or not, they're still going to buy Prada. They're still going to buy Balenciaga, whatever the hell. So all these luxury brands are really... I don't know. I feel like they're kind of immune right now. Maybe I'm wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but I can't see anyone stopping to buy the brands. I think that what you can do is you can be mindful with your own pocket. So not everyone is going to stop buying Prada, but you can choose not to buy Prada. And maybe if the company can realize a mistake, and it's one thing to give a letter of apology to the media, about you realize it's wrong, we're taking this item off the shelves, let's forget this ever happened, right? It's one thing to do that. And it's another thing to say, oh, well, we're going to have anti-bias training in our company. And then we are making a commitment to hire more designers, marketing experts, and positions of power in our industry that are of color. So I kind of think the only way that brands I feel could make those changes is to hire more people of color in these positions. But again, I don't think a lot of people are going to avoid shopping luxury brands because for the reason why it's a luxury brand, you can easily stop doing H&M. Who the hell cares? You just go to Target or whatever, right? But Louis Vuitton is Louis Vuitton. And people that love fashion, they're not playing games with their luxury brands. So I don't think that's going to happen. I do believe that because we see that money is the essence of power and white people have the power due to having the access to funds. I think it takes a very special, you know, investor to invest in black brands, but you can see, for example, LVMH uh, brought in, invested in Fenty, Rihanna's brand. So they invested multi millions of dollars into Brianna's brand she launched Fenty Beauty. And I can't, don't quote me on the millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars in the first launch. I mean, it was astronomical how much money they made. Now, LVMH is a luxury conglomerate. They're no fools. She's a superstar. Everyone loves her. 
she's talented. They're going to put their money behind someone like that. Do you know what I mean? And they're making bank because of it with her brand and her luxury clothing line and her beauty brand. So it all depends on what kind of cachet people have on how much money that they are going to have invested in their businesses. It's sad, but true. What about, so then speaking of people who are popular and influential, and I agree there, you know, what you say about the luxury brands is probably very, very true. But what about the people who have influence like Adele? Like let's shift to cultural appropriation for a second here, because that feels like, you know, okay, I get where brands can totally mess up and put out a product that is absolutely inappropriate. But what about the influencers who have control taking things that they might not or should not probably do like Adele at the Notting Hill Festival? Like what was your reaction to something like that? She had her hair. Was it it? Yeah. Bantu knots and she had Jamaican uh, bikini top on. I don't know. I don't really get that mad at a cultural appropriation. It is cultural appropriation straight up, but I don't really get that upset about it. I'm just not one of those people. I'm like, whatever, you know? So I get more upset if something looks bad. You know, if you actually physically don't look put together, then I'm upset. But if you're like, I don't know, like a blonde girl wearing cornrows or bantu knots, I really personally don't really care. But what I do understand the comments because people will black people think when they see someone like that, like, are you trying to be someone you're not? Or wait, one black mindset might be, you don't want to support us. You want to deny us. You want to act racist towards us, yet you want to absorb and show off and flaunt our culture, our music, our fashion, our personal style, our food, our art. You want all that but you can't pay us. You give us the worst jobs. You make sure that our public school systems are the worst possible public school systems we can never ever achieve without killing ourselves. You will not loan us enough money to launch a business. You won't even loan us money to buy a house. Yet you want to use our talent for the top athletes, the top musicians in the world, fashion, street culture, I mean, everything. So I think there's a lot of anger in the black community when they see white people in the cornrows, in the black outfits, or like white people trying to be hip hop style hard, trying to be hard. Like that's why so many white artists have a hard time breaking into the hip hop world because you can be seen as a joke really fast. So there's a lot of anger because then you're trying to make money off of our culture. And that's how a lot of black people do see it. I don't take it that seriously, but so many black people do. How much do you think your mixed race background plays into your view on this? I mean, I guess it's hard to split that out. You are who you are in there. Yeah. I mean, I am who I am, but also, you know, I'm also not the voice for black culture. I'm not. Though a lot of white people that I know might think I am as their only black friend. You know, I am not the voice of black culture. I have a white mom, period, point blank. If you have a white mom, you cannot speak for black people for the most part. It is not the same at all. And so I can speak from my perspective and I can speak on my experiences and my views, but I am never going to say my voice is the voice of a black woman in America because 
It's not. Even though I live my life and people look at me as black, I am mixed. I am biracial. So it is what it is. So I think that's why I have a little leniency with that. I mean, one of my dear friends who's mixed like me has a second generation mixed kid and his daughter is white passing with blonde curly hair. You see her, you would never know her grandfather's from the Caribbean. Never you would know that. So when she wears cornrows, the girls on Instagram blast her out. How calling her all kinds of names and how dare her cultural appropriation, who she thinks she is wearing cornrows. And then she has to defend herself. My father's half black. My grandfather's black. Basically shut the F up, you know? But she has to sit there and defend her identity because she's white passing. I never had to do that because look at me. If you see me, you don't have any question on that I'm black, but she looks white. So there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that she goes through having to defend her cultural appropriation. Every single time she wears braids, all hell breaks loose on social media because she's very popular on social media. So everyone goes crazy, all these teenagers, you know? And that's just her plight to bear. She's going to have to defend that for the rest of her life. So, you know, people always say, if you are mixed and then on social media, you get a lot of call outs for wearing braids and they're like, oh, I'm mixed. Then people will be like, oh yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. I'm going to be mad at you because you look blonde. But since you just said that your dad's black, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were mixed, you know, or really you're lying. You're not mixed. That's another one. My niece, I cannot believe this. She's fair skinned. She doesn't pass for white, but she's fair skinned. She felt because at school, the kids were doubting her blackness. She felt the need to show a picture of my father to the kids. And I said, you don't owe these kids a damn thing. They don't need to see a picture of your grandfather to prove you're black. But in her mind, she wanted to shut them up. Because when you're mixed, people don't know how to put you in a category. You know what I mean? And it's desperately sad, but this is a life we live. I love that you said that too, because since we're all biracial here, now there is, we have Kamala Harris, right? And she is biracial and she's in the spotlight and suddenly she's having to prove like how black she is, how, you know, Asian she is, like no one knows what to make of her. So I love that you just said like, no one can, you know, if you're mixed, everyone's sort of trying to figure out what box to put you in when you don't neatly fit in a box. So, you know, this hearing the dialogue around Kamala, do you think that it's hard for Americans to talk about being biracial or biracial identities in general? And what do you think about all of this? Oh my God, I could just go on and on about this Kamala stuff. Oh my God. It drives me nuts that everyone and their mother has to identify her in their own way. And I was doing my own little research. Hey, there's these pro-Trump video bloggers that would be like, Kamala's not even black. Like they'll say that to her. They're black, but they'll be like, Kamala's not black because she can't speak about racism because... Her father is Jamaican or not African-American or Kamala is not African-American or how exactly can you describe someone with a South Asian ancestry as African-American? That was one anonymous writer posted that. And it just pisses me off so much because, first of all, mixed 
multiracial people can identify themselves any way they damn well choose to. And no one has a right to tell them how they need to identify. So that is how I stand. I understand that people are upset that she's using the term African-American. I get it. And the reason why I get it is because I have my own views about the being labeled African-American. I myself, as someone who is African, my father is from Burundi, my mother's Italian and German who's American, I never identified myself as African-American. Why? Because my father actually came here as a university student. He did not come here years and years ago as in the transatlantic slave situation. So I always looked at myself as, I definitely consider myself black, but not African-American. But that's just me, because I have every right to identify myself however I damn well choose. But if Kamala wants to identify herself as African-American, who the hell cares? It's her life. That's how she sees herself. It's fine. Yes, her father's Jamaican. Yes, her mother's from India. But if she wants to call herself African-American, she has every right to do so. So that's where I stand on it. It infuriates me that people are always questioning her race, can't figure it out. She needs to be calling her this. She needs to be calling herself that. She doesn't identify strongly enough with her Indian side. She's trying to pretend she's more black, but she's really not. Like all the BS, I think America has such a difficult time understanding multiracial identity that they just don't know where to begin. And they start throwing these ideas at every mixed person and their opinions. And the classic question is, what are you? Oh, that question. Well, and isn't there a bit of a, an irony that like all these people are saying she's not black enough and yet President Obama, who was also biracial, was a black president. Like, is it because he was a man? Is it because that was so neatly black white and now we have Asian and so the people are confused by that? Like, what is the difference? I think the difference, I was just reading an article about this. I think it was Washington Post or someone. They were saying the issue is that Obama is black and white. America is based on black and white. So Americans can see black and white, and they can kind of put it in their own mind. They can't understand Indian and Jamaican. That is like what, what Americans cannot figure out. Indian and Jamaican doesn't fit into the quote unquote box of black and white issues in America. So they can't really blame, and they can't connect to her whiteness because she's not white. Obama, in my personal opinion, became the first black president because he had a white mom. If he did not have a white mother, in my personal opinion, there is no way in hell he would have won the election. Because if you're mixed and you have a white mom, you're easy on the eyes to black white people. You're easy in the mind. They can understand you. They think that you understand them because you have this understanding of white culture. And because he had that, our white society was able to embrace him a little more than they would someone that is just, I guess, one culture, black American, let's say. But with Kamala, she had on her like bio that she's African-American. And so people that really had an issue with the fact that she was saying that term African-American because she's not a descendant of a slave. She's a Jamaican immigrant. And if the parents weren't born here or weren't taken here against their will, then how are you African-American? And I think that a lot of white journalists were just infuriated with this idea 
that she could call herself African-American. And I was just watching and reading and just getting angrier and angrier because, like I said before, she has every damn right to identify herself however she damn well chooses to. So it's no journalist's opinion on what she can identify herself as. That's how I feel. One, isn't it interesting because I think in the conversations I've had where there's a lot of white people who are like, how do I refer to black people? Do I call them black people? Do I call them African-American? Because for so long, that was the new standard phrase that Americans used and like to replace all of the N-words that have come up through the decades and centuries. But like for so long, it was the white people who were deciding what to call people of color. And so it feels like a, how dare you decide what to call yourself? You know, because I think for so long, this African-American phrase was something that was the politically correct thing that black people were supposed to be called, not remembering that there were Islanders and there were immigrants from other countries who look darker skinned, who are not from Africa as a descendant. So yeah, I think that's interesting that you're saying that. It's actually not accurate at all. Every black person that you see in America is not African-American. There's Caribbean-American. There's people from Africa. There's people from all different aspects of the world with dark skin. Doesn't mean they're African-American. And even if they are born here, it doesn't mean they're African-American. Let's say, I mean, actually one of my best friends is Jamaican. She was born here, but then raised in Jamaica. And she considers herself both African-American and Caribbean-American. I'm like, you know what? I'm surprised that she thinks herself as African-American because I would consider her Caribbean-American. There are Caribbean-American people that identify as Caribbean-American, not African-American. But I think to white people, it's all the same. You're black, you're African-American, whatever. You know, it's like, it's just, and I can't say just white. It's people that are non-black. They don't know, not everyone knows what to say. It's not just all white and black, as we know, because you guys aren't white and black. You know, it's in general, non-black people just Everyone has to have a label. This is why everywhere I go, even as an adult, people want to know where I'm from because they can't figure it out. I don't look black enough to them. So people have to feel comfortable. White people need to feel comfortable. They need to know who they're talking to and put them in a place, in a category. And once they do that, they're okay. Now that I know who you are, okay, now let's talk. How you doing? Where you from? Like, how's life? But they, they, no, no, they can't have a conversation until they have categorized you. Ooh. Uh, do you know this when you're mixed that you like forget? Sometimes you get sick and tired of people asking you that. Do you guys have that experience? Has that ever happened to you where people ask you all the time and you're like tired of it? Or you people don't ask you that much? Well, when you have a made up first name, people ask you because they don't know what to do. Well, yeah, your name is unique. I feel like... I have lived in white areas for so long. This is where like, there are times where I talk about white people's perspective and I sometimes slip and I use we, and then I'm like, wait, I'm half Japanese and half white, but I have, nobody asks me anymore. I have a white husband, white presenting kid. Like I have not been asked, where are you from or what's your background in forever? Like, unless it's like a, you know, new corporate meeting or, or that sort of stuff. But like in terms of a social thing, I think I've been internalizing white for so long that I don't know how people see me, but they certainly haven't asked me. Oh, that's interesting. And actually, it's better they don't ask. It's annoying when they ask. It's much better. Well, what you said really hit home because I think we talk so much 
about how we need to humanize each other and see the humanity in each other. And what you've just said is that we are so preoccupied by trying to make sense of the world and putting labels on it that we can't bring ourselves to connect with each other's humanity first, where we need to feel safe first before we can even get into conversation and get to know, you know, what are your values? What have you accomplished? What are your challenges? Who are you as a human? They want the easy and we're being really lazy by defaulting to allowing ourselves to like start the conversation there. Right. And a lot of mixed girls and more than just mixed girls, mixed people in general, I don't know, but I talk to mixed girls about this. So when someone will be like, what are you? When you hear that a hundred times and you don't know these people, you make up all kinds of stories. You start making up stuff depending on your mood, right? So like, I'm not in the mood to tell you that I'm Italian, African, and German. That's none of your damn business. So I'll say, oh, I'm from Brooklyn, which is not really true. I grew up in Long Island. Or I'll say, I'm from Long Island. Anytime I tell them where I'm from in terms of Long Island or Brooklyn, there's a pause. They say, that's not what I'm talking about. I want to know your ethnicity. Because I say that first, I don't feel like dealing with them. You know, you make up all kinds of stuff. Someone says, be like, I'm human. I am who I am. They make up all kinds of stuff because they're sick and tired of the question, you know? And a lot of people be like, that's not what I mean. I want to know where you're from, what's your ethnicity. And then it's up to me to decide if I feel like telling them or not. It reminds me of how so many, and this is the thing that I, it has always irritated me, especially when I was home raising the kids for a while. People are like, what do you do? It's like that sort of same bucketing. And it's like, I do a lot of stuff. Like, what, do you want to know how much money I make? What value I have in society? Is this what you're asking? Like, what are you really asking by starting this conversation with what do you do? You know what? When I was a stay-at-home mom, that question drove me bonkers. Because when you say you're a stay-at-home mom, they think you don't do diddly squat. Oh, you're a stay-at-home mom? Oh, that means you do nothing. No, it doesn't. It means you work 24-7 hours a day. That's what it means. But I always hated that question too, because it's so annoying. And people have their own perceptions of it. Some people say you are then allowing yourself to be slave to others and you have no independence. And like you are at the whim and mercy of this partner who is putting you under their thumb. And I mean, it's like the people's perception of what anything means. It's like, you don't want to answer anything. Like, I don't know. Okay. I could go off on that one. I'm just going to rein that right in here. Misasha's heard that. (laughs) Trust me. That drives me nuts. That drives me bonkers. I Know how, oh, especially if you were professional and then you're a stay at home mom, then you really, that's all, that'll take you for a whirl. Cause then you're like, wait, I really was successful. Now I'm nursing. I really was, but now I'm like at a playground 24 hours a day. I really was smart and I really did have a brain, but mm-hmm. now all I do is make lunch and sit at a playground. No, but that's not true, you know? But they try to make it seem like that. I may have done a TEDx talk on that one, like for real. I actually did. <laughs> off on that. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Cause there was a lady who met me at a, and I had been a former professional Harvard grad, like I, you know, banking on all that. And I stopped because my kid needed me to be home with her and pay attention. And she goes, what do you do? And I paused just for a moment. I go, I'm at home with my daughter. And she goes, Oh, and turns around and walks away. And I'm like, Oh my God, my rage. Like it just tapped into like everything that I had about that. So anyway. I hear it. I remember I blanked out. I was a stay-at-home mom. My daughter was literally maybe like six months. And I had my fashion business, but I had just closed my production company. And I'm on the playground in the swing. And this other mom came up and she was like, oh, 
what do you do? And again, I was like, you know, I'm staying home with my daughter, but I used to have a fashion, I'm in fashion. I had a fashion PR and production company. And she's like, oh, I'm a stylist. She goes, so what designer clients have you worked with? And there, as I'm pushing the baby swing, mom fog brain flies over my head. I could not answer the question. I had no idea what client I had ever worked with. I didn't know what the hell is that. I was so shocked she asked me a business question on the playground because I had been nursing for like six months straight and had no brain. So I was like, wait, what? I flibbered, I flabbered. I don't know what the hell I told this woman. I was so embarrassed because she was like, we have mutual friends. One of her friends is a stylist for Harper's Bazaar. And I'm like, oh my God, you know her. And then she tried to catch me out there. I didn't even know what clients I had. That's how my brain fog was. And then I finally saw her again because she's a neighborhood friend. And I was like, okay, I had total mom brain fog. Let me tell you. So these are the clients that I used to work with. I listed all my Yves Saint Laurent and all my designer clients because I literally had nothing to say that day. Truth. And that was like the proof of my sheer and utter brain fog. That is universal mom experience, no matter what race we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So true. Tell us where to find you. Okay. Where to find me is you can find me at Radiant Mix on Instagram. That is the podcast that I have celebrating multicultural identity. And at the same time, you can also follow me on my personal page at hope.mcgrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H. And I also have websites, Radiant Mix and Hope McGrath. You can check them out. And I wanted to share that I'm at actually launching my first ever digital program. I'm so excited about it, my digital course. And what the intention is is to help multiracial women and feminine allies of diversity, meaning women that really care about multicultural existence, who feel unfulfilled, who feel loneliness and they're riddled with self-doubt. And I use my coaching expertise to teach how to learn how to nurture authentic relationships, how to find love, how to truly deepen the love for yourself, and how to live with confidence in order to pursue your creative passions. So I'm really all about helping you really open up your heart, connecting to authentic relationships, and really finding that passion and taking action. So one of my course is going to be really diving into all this. So if you are interested, email me, hope at hopemcgrath.com, M-C-G-R-A-T-H.com, and I'll let you know more info. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 